date these guys, this Naomi guy, and that's Jewel guy. And we do a podcast talking about sex, dating, and relationships. Um, today we are following back up with part two of the curious history of dating from Jane Austen Tinder by Nietzsche Hodgson. But first we want to introduce our drink and also spill a little tea about my life because the X saga continues. Uh, so we are drinking another of the Jaritos we purchased. Again, I have a 12 pack, so it's going to take us a while to get through all of these. Uh, this is fruit punch flavored soda. I'm not a big fan of fruit punch flavor, so let's see if I'm a fan of fruit punch soda. I don't mind Tastes it. like carbonated fruit punch. Yeah. yeah. Inoffensive. This would be good in like a mixed drink of some kind. Yeah, I like this fruit punch. Usually fruit punch is like really overwhelmingly sweet. Yes, this like is like Hawaiian punch. Inoffensive. Yeah. I would not turn this down at a pool party. Aw, how yeah. cute. Okay, Naomi, we before we started recording, Naomi was spilling tea and is like, let us get this on tape. I didn't so even tell Joel about this. For for a little bit of context. Uh, we've been receiving a lot of messages from people recently, and this was one of them, and I had no idea the context. And Naomi receiving messages on me. the uh, Why Wonder Disney Instagram. Guys Instagram, yeah. which if you don't follow, go follow us on Instagram at Date These Guys. So, um, I last year published a podcast episode with Joel where I um, read out the text message that my ex boyfriend had sent me after we broke up. And then we went through it, we read it, and then we went through it, analyzed line by line. Like the like the liberal arts students we were. This like was, the liberal uh, arts students that we are. Dirty laundry day. Yes. Episode 10. After that happened, after I got sent that text, I blocked everyone that surrounded him and his group, like his group of friends. And also I blocked him. Um, but I didn't think that anyone was going to reach out on the podcast account. And I was like, hey, a follower is a follower. Um, you know what? Let's just keep them. <laughs> Naomi's ethics are flexible when it comes to the podcast. I get a message on what, like Tuesday morning from Joel. And he goes, somebody named Terry um, decided they were going to um, message us. And I have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. I'm not going to name any names, but. um, You literally just named a name. That wasn't their name. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, And so he he fucked up their name real bad, but. this person texts me and goes, LOL, I have a question, haha. Did you or someone you know go into Blank's work and tell her that Blank was cheating on her? It's a long story, but we're all trying to figure out who it was. And then she sent me like a little like thinking emoji. And I was like, that's kind of fucking weird. Um, I said, um, no, I did not because I don't care. But thank you for checking with me. I don't think anyone that knows Blank anymore Um, so I don't know anyone that knows blank anymore, so I couldn't be uh, anyone that I know either. And then she goes on to say, thank you, three exclamation points of the blue heart. And I said, I really just don't fucking care about that group anymore. Blue heart. And then I blocked her. So cordial. But the thing was that like, I was like, do you really think that I care that much about that friend group that I'm going to continue to go out of my way to be extremely disrespectful and get in on everyone's business. Naomi is just always talking about this friend group. Not a day goes by. The, the words uh, the words are exchanged about this friend circle and the lifelong friends she made within this group and the amazing experiences she had. That's untrue. I don't think I've heard a word out of her mouth about this <laughs> in a year and a it half. It was just so weird because like it's been almost a year since like everything went down and 
I haven't heard from any of them. And I just thought like we were just going to continue through our lives without like any more issues. But I guess this just happened. And I was like, why? But apparently someone who looks identical to Naomi is going into people's places of employment and breaking up relationships. Well, the issue is that like while this person was dating the person um, that apparently I, I went into their work and told them about, um, he was also... Um, Last summer, when I was still dating uh, my ex, um, he had told me some things uh, like that this guy that I apparently was messing with, um, which... The clever pranks, you mean. The clever pranks, yeah. Um, (laughs) Was cheating on this girl with the girl that actually sent me the DM and also sexting many women at the time that I, like, knew these women. And so he has been cheating on this woman, but um, that's none of my business. And I was like, I'm not going to tell. Because I've never met the woman that he was dating. So I was like, I don't even know what she looks like. How could I do that? Um, but yeah, there was, there was a lot of drama there. One of the funniest stories, though, that I need to tell since we're on this subject is um, we just gotten back together after like six months apart. And this was the like the first time. Six <laughs> the happiest six life. months of my life. And we just got back together. It was like the first time that we'd gone to a party with his friend group um, since we got back together. And um, he had dated while we were apart someone in his friend group. And so I get to the party and everyone's kind of like shocked to see me, I guess. And we're sitting around in a circle and I look over to one of his friends because the girl that he was dating like while we were apart wasn't there yet. And um, one of her friends that was also at the party was like, I look over and I just see her like slyly, and I put that in quotation, slyly taking a picture of me. And then he just gets, his phone just gets blown up by the other girl, like just sending him text messages. Later come to find out they were still dating at the time that I did not know about. Oh. Yeah, so um, funny situations. Speaking of crazy dating stories Let's get back to the First World War. <laughs> Khaki Fever and Ladies in Black. That's actually the name of the, the chapter. Nothing more attractive than a man wearing khakis in the trenches. Um, that's actually all that the men wore at the school that we went to. This is also true. Yeah. So um, during the First World War, there was curfews put on place uh, on places. Uh, sorry, curfews were put in place on women in towns such as Grantham. Prohibitions were placed on women's drinking, so no opportunity to police women's sexual behavior was wasted. So this was put into place because there was a lot of opportunity for promiscuous women during this time. Women were scorned and used to scorn. So women used sex to get a husband. He would die. She would inherit the money. The uh, the process would continue. And this was also used, like sex was used in order to trade secrets, like war secrets as well. Um... So love letters were also very big at this time. Um, And this is actually kind of sad, but the government would read the love letters in order to make sure that no war secrets were being traded um, overseas and nothing was like being passed through and there was no like spies or anything. I cannot wait to slap that booty again. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it was just um, a lot of them, they gave examples. A lot of them were just saying like, oh, I'm so lonely and blah, blah, blah. Um, But most of these letters led to marriage. So um, men would send rings in the mail and be like, we're engaged. Like, let's do this kind of thing when I get back. Um, Men would come back on leave and um, 
get married and they would have sex and then he'd leave again. Um, this is actually pretty funny because there was a rise in VD at the time. And so women would want to, if they wanted to keep their men on leave for longer, um, if men caught VD, they would have to be on leave for like two months or something in order to recover. So women would catch VD in order to give it to their like husband or romantic partner and um, then make him stay longer in the States. With Martha, her. did you sleep with my best friend Thomas? I did, but it was for the sake of our relationship. <laughs> So, um, like I mentioned, there was like a lot of um, hasty marriages because there was this sense of like, it's now or never, basically, um, during this time period, if they were going to get married, they had to do it now. If they were going to have sex, they had to do it now. Um, short skirts became a fashion because less fabric was available. That's interesting. Yeah. And that's what led to the shorter skirts fashion leading into the twenties. But we'll talk about that later. Were legs actually exposed or were people still expected to wear like hose and long socks? They had stockings and stuff. Okay, so okay. there was a little bit of visual uh, visuals of the leg because the legs were still like nude. It, like the, the uh, pantyhose were nude colored, but you could see that it was pantyhose because they had a black line running from the mm-hmm. heel to the top of the leg, just where the butt is. So um, actually, this is really funny, um, but women who were interviewed during this time period, um, it's like historically significant because women went into nursing to help the war effect, of course, or the, the war effort, of course, but the, um, they were one of the only um, the groups of people that got any sort of sexual education because mm-hmm. before this, um, women were not told, oh, there's a penis down there. It's kind of like on your wedding night, somebody drop your their pants and you're like, what the fuck is that, basically? I, I assume it was like kind of whispered secrets among friends. Like. No, yeah, it's kind of like middle school, basically, yeah. um, but without the proper sexual education. Oh, so like middle school, basically. <laughs> no, our middle school experience. Some people actually got sexual education. Well, if they have a good educator like Joe Russo. Joe Russo. <laughs> Um, so being single during this time became okay because, um, more women there were stateside. And so, um, it was okay to be single and it was okay to just go out with your friends and be just like single. Um, baby rates were going up because sex rates were going up. There was, like I mentioned before, a significant amount of people that were like, it's now or never, we're going to get married. We're going to have sex. Babies were born. Fathers didn't always come home from war. So um, during this time, it was kind of crazy, but um, there was a large, significant rise in VD, like I mentioned before, because contraceptives weren't always accessible, specifically condoms weren't accessible, wow, words, and um, that's, that's just how it be, that's just how it goes. One thing, and I may have mentioned this before on the podcast, you might get into it further, is that it's thought that a lot of the modern acceptance and normalization of gay people, maybe acceptance is the wrong word, what kind of sparked the fight by gay people to be recognized was World War One and World War Two, Because before that period, the general tendency was that if you grew up somewhere, you'd stay roughly in that same area for yeah. most of your life. Yeah. And so if somebody was gay, there's a very strong... Uh, impetus to not come out because you knew you'd be 
most likely shunned and not accepted by friends, family, neighbors, and mm-hmm. there really weren't any other options besides packing up your entire life and leaving. Yeah. But World War One and World War Two come along, and suddenly you have tens of thousands, millions of young men and women who are interacting with people that they've never met before, mm-hmm. who they know that they can flirt with and have dalliances with without worrying about, like, what what their neighbors and friends and family will say. And so there were a lot of, of troops and platoons in both of these wars that were composed primarily of, like, very gay people. Yes. And that they would have, like, secret clubs and get-togethers where yes. they would interact. And, you know, you, you have gay culture suddenly starting to form when before it didn't even exist uh, because there just weren't large enough pockets of people willing to, you know, be open and accepting. So these people come back from war and are like, wait... I was really happy during wartime because there were people I could interact with, and now I'm back in America. And this begins to spark kind of discussions in small gay groups. Why can't we achieve, you know, greater success? And obviously there are other precipitating instances. Uh, Obviously the Stonewall riots played a large role. Obviously it was not as simple as them, you know, just demanding rights and snapping fingers and getting them. But really what sparked modern conversations about gay rights and gay acceptance in America and other parts of the world were the world wars. That's not to say it couldn't have happened without world wars, but that's just how things seemingly resulted. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yes, that is very true that there was a rise in um, open gay affection in platoons, and um, it it was obviously more secret. Just like the Spartans. Stateside. Um, But um, I would like to go more into the statistics of VD. Ooh. Um, so by December 1914, there was 1,230 cases of VD under British expenditory force charge with um, rates seven times higher than that of the um, Germans, uh, uh, purely because the British government was in denial about it. By 1960, more than 100,000 soldiers had been admitted to hospitals in Britain and they had been diagnosed with VD. That's so many soldiers. I know. So women were actually detained in hospitals for medical inspection if they were under suspicion of having VD because they didn't want the woman to go out and have more sex. And because there was a rubber shortage, because rubber at this time was coming out of Japan and um, it was scarce because um, of the Japanese take... Oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't coming out of Japan. It was scarce to do the Japanese takeover of Malaya, which was resulted in a shortage of rubber. That's why there was a rise in VD as well as a rise in children during this time. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you could also imagine an alternative world where a shortage of condoms leads to other sexual practices becoming more normalized. Yeah. Like erotic whipping. Erotic This is my fan fiction universe. (laughs) (laughs) So moving right into the 20s, the world is anew it's um shitty because the world of the war has ended um but this is the age of cocktails and cocaine women stayed working after the war as many people know and i'm not going to give a lot of like detail on each of these chapters coming up because this is just a part of history so like we all know that women stayed working after the war um besides liberty has its limitation as women struggled to hold gown jobs and keep keep lodgings going were realizing in their droves women turned to magazines for advice about how to conduct their relationships women's weekly agony aunt miss marriott 
employed a kindly but candid approach in her responses, replying to one letter from a poor young woman troubling over her and her husband-to-be's incompatibility when it came to sporting pursuits and whether she might indulge in her passion separately miss marriott concluded i don't think you have to write to me for advice if your love for your fiance was the real thing independence it seemed lasted only as long as your journey to the altar the official line was that flirtation versus relationships with a view of marriage required entirely different navigations and expected entirely different behavior from your relative um, participants. The single girl of the, of the 20s could be short-skirted, short-haired, loose-limbed, and lipped, um, smoking and drinking, career-focused, but the future wife would be accommodating and sacrificial. That's, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of like what we already discussed in the past where you might have a woman you were pursuing or someone you already married and then like a side mistress yeah you know there's the person you want to settle down with and have children with for property or for power reasons and then there's the person you bang on the side who's more fun and loose but she the woman on the side has the benefits of finances oh god is this like a betty and veronica situation oh my god you can't these, bring that these... up now without me thinking about the awful show that is Riverdale. That's true. It just ruined that entire conversation. But yeah, I'm just saying these archetypes come up throughout history. I mean, yeah. We even have, uh, I think it's in Jewish mythology, you have Eve and then the first woman who was like a taft demon or something. And yeah. Adam being tempted by both of them in turn. This is an elemental part of our mythology, Naomi. Aliens wouldn't understand this, but all humans do. So there's a rise in jazz at the time and also a rise in interracial marriages. Um, the first official sex manual came out in um, 1918. How to have sex for dummies. So when Mary Stopes published Married Love in 1918, it was effectively the first sex manual. Stopes wrote the book after being spurred on by the American birth control campaigner and speaker, Margaret Sanger. And although it initially turned down by a slew of publishers, it was reprinted five times in the first year when it finally did make the presses and by the end of 1923 had run on um, into 22 reprints and sold over 400,000 copies. In her book, Stopes advocated the benefits of conjugal love and physical pleasure within marriage. In my own marriage, she told readers in the preface, I paid such a terrible price for sex ignorance that I feel knowledge and gain I feel knowledge gained at such a cost should be placed at the service of humanity. Stopes should have known. When she had filed for divorce two years earlier, she is reported as saying of her husband's lackluster penis, I only remember three occasions on which I it was partially rigid, and then it was never effecti- effectively rigid. Of course, the information was just as applicable to unmarried love, even though Stopes would never say that outright. Stopes received letters revealing the real identities of single girls posing as married women, for example. And it's worth noting that she was vehemently and vocally anti-abortion. Yet she cared deeply for the plight of working-class women and opened up the first birth control clinic in North Holloway in 1921 to tend to those as a result. Run by professional medical staff, the clinic gave out Stopes pro-race brand cervical cap along with the advice despite along with advice despite having 500 takers in the first six months by 1930 the clinic had advised 10,000 women she followed up um book her follow-up book to married love wise parenthood published in 1922 set out her views on contraception more radically and widely condemned by the catholic church despite the british social 
hygiene council realizing that sexuality would probably be best taught during school biology lessons, government ministers ignored the Board of Education's recommendation in 1927, and it remained discretionary. Sir, similarly, the government ministers proposing the that local health authority should be allowed to give contraception advice didn't manage to convince the Ministry of Health until 1930. In the meantime, Stopes' book had a baffled captive audience. I, I like how so many politicians nowadays, like, we're the party of science. We believe in science, unlike the other people, and what they mean by science is very different. Uh, but every time they're like, well... What can science tell us about teaching children about sex? And science is like, oh, well, we found uh, in sociology studies that when you teach children about sex, they're more prepared for having sex and the ramifications of it. And they're more, less likely to have STIs. And they're more likely to use birth control. They're more likely to make good decisions. And government's like, oh, no, 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 we don't want that. Oh, my God. Ugh. Give away condoms in schools? That's insane. Yeah, because that would promote sex. Yeah. Um, doctors regarded failing in love as women that might be fall that might fall into excessive masturbation, short-lived affairs, or lesbianism. And if the 19, <laughs> 1890s <laughs> had been the decade that exposed and condemned male homosexual homosexuality, then the 1920s was the decade that turned its attention to lesbianism. It took the obscenity trial of the first of the single book Radcliffe's Halls: The Well of Loneliness to expose the establishment's unease with female-female relationships. Besides the dictum that it was an obscene libel and all copies should be destroyed, this was supported by medical statement from Sir William Henry Wilcox, consulting medical advisor to the Home Office, stating lesbianism is well known to be debasing on its practices, which is mental, moral, and physical in character. It is a vice which is widespread, became a danger to the well-being of the nation. Sorry, I can't get over the fact you said dictum. Dictum. Classic dictums, despising lesbianism. I can't believe that people named Richard have the nickname Dick. And that's all I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Moving into the 30s, um, the 30s marriage table. So it's in this book, um, there is a table of ages. So on one side of the table, it's when the mar- the husband is aged when he gets married and when the wife is aged when she gets married. So this was pretty pretty typical age-appropriate table for the guidance of matrimonial compatibility at the time. Oh my God, it's like astrology charts. Yeah. So if the husband is 27, his wife is 21. If the husband is 31, his wife is 24. If the husband is 35, his wife should be 28. If the husband is 39, his wife should be 31. If the husband is 45, his wife should be 35. If his husband is if the husband is 49, the husband the woman the wife should be 37. If the husband is 54, the wife should be 42, and if the husband is 58, the wife should be 45 and hey, nobody lived past that yeah but, but back up <laughs> what was that first age range you gave 27 to 21 so 27 half of that would be 15 and a half plus seven so that one doesn't fit the creepy rule but the rest all <laughs> pass the creepy rule which again for our listeners is half your age plus seven that's the lowest you can date half your so age. naomi how old are you right now i'm 21 21, half your age is 10 and a half, yeah. plus 7. You can only date 17 and a half year old. Ew, why would I date a 17 and a half year old? Look, the idea is age of consent applies here too. But if you're like 40, half your age, 20, plus 20, 27, the lowest you can date, and even then you're really pushing it, is 27. By 1931, the average age for marriage had fallen to 25 for women and 27 for men. 
So risking it all for love became a main theme during this time. And a lot, you see a lot more uh, um, people from upper classes marrying people from middle class to lower classes. This is the rise of those movies where like a man is chasing like a woman through an airport and yeah. like, her plane takes off and he like is chasing after her on the runway. And he's like, I've changed. Take me back. And the plane is forced to land. But it's like old timey black and white. The, the, the police are coming and go, woo, 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 woo. And it's, it's all down the runway. Humor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Charlie Chaplin did the first example of this. Moving right along. Maybe this was a fever dream I had about Charlie Chaplin films and liar, liar. <laughs> the upper classes still relied on coming out seasons, but to less effect than before. During the depletion of men since 1918, according to the 1921 census, there was one million seven hundred and twenty thousand eight hundred and two more women than men with the mortality rate for some reason higher amongst baby boys so during this season um of, uh, during this time period dating was a luxury because of the economic depression so we saw less of the dating culture um and more of a um sort of courtship kind of thing like you met and then you just got married it was less about dating and more about just getting to the end result. But you'd still, like I mentioned before, had a emphasis on risking it all for love. For gay men and women, romantic opportunities were also escalating. The year 1937 saw the publication of a book called For Your Convenience, a, euphemism, a euphemistic guide to cottaging, which marked out the best kind of public toilets in which to meet the like-minded <laughs> male cohorts. At around the same time... Remember when pubs- public toilets were a thing? Certain pubs in London became known for their queer credentials, places where both gay men and women could meet and date under the protection of the dogged status. And yet, it was also in the 1930s that the divorce laws were amended, in theory making it easier than ever to end the marriage. But before 1937, adultery had to be proven in order for the divorce to be granted, which meant acrimonious but non-cheating couples had to orchestrate a visit from a random lady friend or chambermaid to a husband's hotel room in order to fake an infidelity. After the Matrimonial Clauses Act of 1937, however, the first major change to the divorce laws in 1857, annulment could be granted on the grounds of non-consummation, being an of unsound mind, having epilepsy, venereal disease, or being pregnant by another man. Yet although ending a marriage no longer required a trip to the London divorce courts, it was extra it was extra I can't even say that word. It was extremely expensive and constituted rep it and constituted reputational suicide. So women are now governmentally more equal because, you know, they can vote now. That's crazy. As of 1928. Um, And uh, what they wore also changed. So they they were still smoking um, because of the influence in the 1920s. They wore more sporty clothes. They are now driving to say nothing of taking on the same jobs of work and spending their leisure in the same places of amusement. Where from back and down um, to the waist, um, the young of both sexes are often indistinguishable. Moving right along, this was something interesting that I think will blow your mind, Joel. Where was the most popular place to have sex in the 1930s if you were not married? Um, Rosebush. Just the middle of a rosebush. Movie theaters. 
at tracks. So movie makers had to stop making saucy films mm. in order to stop having these visits to the movie theaters. I'm going to push back against that. Okay. Um, so it's my understanding the industry imposed something called the Hayes Code in the early 30s. Let's see. Okay, it looks like, yeah, it was imposed for movies between 1934 and 1968. So in the 1920s, okay, I'm looking at an article from ACMI.net. It is an article called Early Hollywood and the Hayes Code by Maria Lewis. It was published in 2021 in January. So it's a history of the motion picture production code known as the Hayes Code, which was instituted in order to cut down on obscene content in films. So Hollywood in the 1920s is a super racy time. Films were beginning to mature, and they were dealing with adult content. They were sort of racy and projected images of women in power making their own choices. There are off-screen stories of drugs and alcohol and partying and overindulgence, and then the industry was rocked by really huge scandals, namely the death of Olive Thomas, the murder of William Desmond Taylor, and the alleged rape of Virginia Rape. Virginia rap by popular movie star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. All these things brought together widespread condemnation from religious, civic, and political organizations. Many felt the movie industry was morally questionable, so there was political pressure. So there was the uh, Wall Street crash of 1929. Um, There's this need to bring people back into films. Uh, It turns out that uh, people were not too interested in going to films when they had no money. And so the Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America was run by a guy named William Hayes at the time who suggested that they add a code to make all films released in America abide by certain moral rules. So create kind of this pristine image of America for people to bring them back into the movies and make movies more socially acceptable again. So the code prohibited profanity, suggestive nudity, graphic or realistic violence, sexual persuasions, and rape. It had rules around the use of crime, costume, dance, religion, national sentiment morality and according to the code even within the limits of pure love or realistic love certain facts have been regarded as outside the limits of safe presentation so in many films you have like married couples sleeping in separate beds because it's considered uncouth to have one big bed and you know a couple sleeping in the same one so i'm not saying what you're saying is completely inaccurate if indeed movie theaters are the best place to have sex and it could be people were spurred on by all this salacious content in the films women being like oh she's so free i'm gonna start making out the man to my left Uh, But I do think there's a larger social trend going on where movies are seen as obscene and the industry makes the decision to try to regulate itself in an effort to make more money. Thanks, capitalism. Woo. Well, Mm -hmm. actually, um, it mentioned in the book that um, the unemployed got a discount on their movie tickets, and that's where a lot of people spent their days. Yeah, but we're talking about a period in time when people are boiling belts in order to have something to eat for dinner. Yum. You know, people are are relying solely on potatoes. This is also a weird period in American history where the Red Cross really didn't give out food. They felt that was kind of morally bad to allow people to be reliant upon an organization. And so they actively discouraged people from getting in bread lines. It wasn't until I think the late 30s, early 40s that they were like, okay, maybe there are broader social trends at work that require us to supplement people's diets. So moving right along into the 40s... um We're talking about the um, Second World War. So, curiously, the marriage rate shot up. In 1940, there was 534,000 marriages in England and Wales, nearly 40,000 more than the previous year, and 125 more than 
uh, 25,000 more than 1938. This is before the war even starts. Yes. Interesting. Americans, meanwhile, married at the rate of 100 a day um, during the weeks after Pearl Harbor. Brides were younger, with three in every 10 under the age of 21. So the weekend affair, um, which became entirely too common, um, snatched romantic and sexual encounters spun out over 48 hours, was in many ways a prototype of today's Tinder encounter with a further reaching consequences leading as it often did to a hasty wartime wedding um, before serving as um, a honeymoon. Such weddings were su- were very much in the make do and mend spirits of wartime. So again, we go back to now or never affairs. And um, this also led to a lot of pregnancies because um, women if they didn't end up getting married after this 48-hour period, um, there was a lot of illegitimate children that um, came by it. But now illegitimate children were now legitimate if the woman is married by the time the child is born. So even if it is an illegitimate child to the husband, they're considered legitimate if the woman is married by the time the baby comes. We keep mentioning now or never affairs because of people being concerned about the future and you kind of see that now, you know, we've mentioned how people are reacting to COVID in the world mm-hmm. of dating where some people just want to have as much sex and sexual experiences and relationships as they can after being cooped up for so long. Yeah. And other people are like, you know what? I'm done pursuing just casual sex from people who don't respect me. I'm looking for long-term partners now. Yeah. And I, I think that's a trend that's probably repeated over and over again throughout yeah. the years. So letter writing is really big. Uh, the government goes back to um, reading all of the letters. Um, Just like they read all of our tweets today. Yeah. Um, and then they there's a rise in strategic marriages. So across the pond, the notorious allotment annies had a nuptial strategy of their own. Allotment annies were women who roped departing soldiers into marriage in order to secure $20 a month that the government U.S. government automatically assigned to the serviceman's wife. in the case of a private. If you were married to an airman, you received a $10,000 check in the event that him being killed in action and some women sizing up a high amount of pilot mortality actually sought out airmen for this very reason. (laughs) Even if he were to survive at this time away from your honey was to put a strain on all but the most robust of arrangements. Women's magazines were careful not to condone affairs, but it was still emphasized the need for discretion and secrecy. No husband needed or wanted to know that a slip up you had made while he was busy fighting for king and country. But the number of legitimate births, which rose from 26,574 from in 1942 to 64,743 by 1945, gave the game away. Abortions, of course, were legal and extremely difficult to arrange, although they did take place in private medical clinics or in the back streets, which all too frequently endangered woman life. Wow, it's like that today, too. So um, women started dressing like men just based off of the accessibility to clothing. Um, because of the war effort, um, all the fabric was being used for uniforms. So again, shorts beca- short, skirts became even shorter and um, women decided that they were going to start wearing pants and manly clothing. But I think that also goes hand in hand with women working in factories yes, and other positions that's also true. where long dresses and bits of clothing like that are going to get caught in machinery. And so this goes back to why that whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus anecdote is so stupid. Because it's like, well, men are unique in that they want 
articles of clothing that convey power. And the examples he gives are like things that women in the same positions also wear, because it turns out if you're a doctor, you want something to protect yourself from, you know, biological fluid and also something that clearly shows if you've spilled anything. And if you're a machinist, you want something thick to protect you against sparks and heat and so on and so forth. Makes sense. It yeah. tracks. Um, men didn't trust women in masculine clothing. They think they thought it inspired masculine traits of carousing, boorishness, and general sexual moral. I, I do always love that when men are like, "Ugh, these women are becoming so much like us, and we're insufferable." Yeah. At the same time, sexualized images of women were crucial to boosting wartime morale. Prostitution also grew exponentially during wartime and served many a function that dating might have done otherwise, providing men with fleeting companionship alongside sexual release and women, war widows, or otherwise much-needed extra income. It was not until 1945 that sexual education become, became a part of school curriculum, and even then it focused on the reproduction of plants and other mammals if you were lucky. That was early sexual education. Some really erotic images of, like, stamens and pistols. Oh, yeah. Those nice flowers. Please stop. <laughs> so, <laughs> their um, divorce rate also went up during this time. Um, 7,995 divorces in 1939 became more than 60,000 in 1947. Um, and there is a rise in marriage guidance. So like before you even got married, they advised you to go and see a marriage counselor to see if you even were thought, like even if you wanted to get married. Um, so again, you could get out of marriage for housing reasons, mental illness and infidelity. Um, but it wasn't also advised at this time. Like it was, again, it was social suicide. Is that still a thing? I recall when we were younger and we'd watch like cartoons on TV Saturday morning for a while, there was just an obnoxious trailer for the Robin Williams film License to Wed, where there's like a horrible yeah, pastor trying that. to prevent yeah, yeah. Two, two people from getting engaged. Yeah, oh, my God, that was John Krasinski. What? John John Krasinski was, was in that film, starring opposite of uh, Mandy Moore. Incredible. I think we're thinking of the different movie. No, it was License to Wed with Robin Williams. John Krasinski, prior to his office days, was okay, in that. Okay, Incredible. Um, so the safest way for same-sex couples to meet was through personal ads. Um, but again, they had to be very coded in order to make sure that they weren't being outed publicly. Wait, so do you even mention sex in a personal ad? Are you like, I'm a man seeking a man? Or are you like, I am a individual interested <laughs> Seeking in another individual. individual. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I'm just assuming that people just had to code it in like pre. Yeah, like, I, I know that there were a lot of quote unquote men's interests magazines that started in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, where it was like hot photos of muscular men. And it was uh, like, yeah. oh, these are for people interested in fitness. And they would have like a section in the back where it was like, I am a man interested in fitness and keeping my body toned yeah. looking for a man interested in fitness. So moving into the 50s, um, I want to talk uh, about this um, study that was done on love, marriage, and family. In 1955, the author, Georgery Gorer, published a book called Exploring English Character, a survey of some 11,000 Brits' opinions on love, marriage, and family, class, race, and economics, based on answers sourced by the People newspaper. 
Despite conservative anxieties about the decline of Christian morales and the inhibition loosening effect of two war times, Gore found that 52% of the population were against any sexual experience for young men before marriage. 63% were against it for women, with the main reason being that marriage should be herald a new experience. That said, in the 1950s, three out of every 100 men still lost their virginity to prostitutes. Across the United States, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, young men and women seized the opportunity to tie the knot. Although this was just about sold on the American concept of teenage dating, but the age of 26, by the age of 26 out of 10 British girls were thinking about marriage. Reported the Daily Mail, mirror in 1959 with the average age endemic worry set in about 17 steady relationship could survive a year but if marriage wasn't proposed by that point a girl was liable to lose interest in reality the average age of engagement uh, the average engagement lasted two years and usually led to the big wedding no comparison to today's bank account busting affair but the kind where dresses uh, were dressed hosted guests Cake and wine were finally no longer rationed, could once again be afforded, um, as could setting up house away from parents, which prior to this had been prohibitively expensive and meant it often took couples many years before they could ever have sex in private. The average age of marriage also fell to 22.6 for women and 25 for men, the lowest it had seen since the 19th century. Despite more women um, entering the workforce, the message being spread by the establishment was that women should leave their jobs to tend a hearth and home. A wife should ideally support her husband's chances for capitalist advancement while focusing on raising healthy babies. Amongst American sexologist Kinsley's findings were the re- revelatory numbers of men and women had they enjoyed same-sex experiences and pleasure of vaginal versus clitoral orgasms and the introduction of the sliding scale of homo to heterosexuality. When the report was published, it was a significant cultural impact on both sides of the Atlantic. In the Daily Mirror article from August 1953, one of Kinsey's most controversial findings that a woman was more likely to neck or pet was also more likely to marry um, was given a double page spread. So... Um, this was published in the Kinsley Report. Um, it's, I think it's Kinsey. Kinsey, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. I put an extra L in there. Uh, yeah, the other interesting thing about the Kinsey Report was they found a fairly high incidence of bestiality. Interesting. I think it was like between 1% and 3% of people like just openly admitted that they had a sexual encounter with an animal at some okay. point. I think it was also roughly equal between men and women. I don't recall all the exact details, but it was like hey, I'm growing up on a farm in the middle of nowhere without contact with people who aren't my significant family. Uh, Yes, I have urges, and I'm going to take them out. Interesting. Yeah, it it was a very, very fascinating study, and there's still the Kinsey Institute, which does updates to the study on a pretty consistent basis, trying to understand how sexual orientation and people's desires change over time. So moving right into the 60s, because the 50s obviously wasn't that interesting. It just had statistics on sex and bestiality, apparently. Um, the Thanks, Nichi. Nichi. I don't know how to say her name. It's N-I-C-H-I. Nichi. In the BBC program on the topic of marriage, broadcast in 1964, a group of senior school children were asked for their opinions on why they might wait to have sex until marriage. Respecting the girl was the top answer and the one best received 
by the interrogating teacher. When a national poll, um, opinion poll conducted in 1969 asked the same question, a geographical divide um, became apparent with 70% of the people in Scotland thinking sex before marriage was wrong and a number which fell to 47% in Wales and the West, 44% in North England and a lowly 29% in London in the South. Life in the South was simply sexier. Nevertheless, there That's was often said about the South. Nevertheless, there was a contradiction between what men and women said was the right thing to do and what they were actually doing. By the time the first Brook Sexual Health Clinic opened in 1964, an established 480,000 women in Britain were actually taking an oral contraceptive pill. And by 1969, 48% of women under the age of 23 had taken it. Initially, the pill was available on the NHS to married women whose health was at risk in case of further pregnancies, but in 1967, the National Health Service Planning Act recommended that contraceptive advice and supplies be given to all women in England and Wales. Family planning in Britain was given the royal seal of approval in 1969 when the Duke of Edinburgh opened the Margaret Pike Center at the headquarters of the FPA. Roman Catholics naturally mainstreamed opposition, and the majority of the country was coming to terms with contraception on as a human basic as a basic human right. So, moving into more interesting topics, well, what I think are more interesting topics, um, there was obviously more freedom during this time of both sexes, but um, they talk a lot in this book about kinks. But most, most women and gay men were about to experience the greatest sexual freedom they had to date. New sex research from the American duo Masters and Johnson publication in 1966 has, was exploding various myths about, human sexu- about female sexuality and their findings were even more radical than those of Kinsey, such as distinguishing between the clitoral and vaginal orgasm. Then, in 1968, the Sexual Offenses Acts, which de- decriminalized homosexual acts between consenting adults in private and had been introduced as a result of Wolfenden inquiry was finally passed. It still had limitations in it excluded the armed forces and the age of consent remained 21 for homosexuals compared with 16 for heterosexuals. But gay men had finally had gay sex and privacy of their own homes without fear of reprimand reprimand. Sorry. Dating, however, would take another decade. Meanwhile, interracial marriages were... I don't know why I thought this was the the kink talk, but interracial marriages' rates were up. Whoa, Naomi. Bit concerning you consider that a kink. In 1960s, this was also a decade in which kinky sex, there we go, started to become, if not even more socially acceptable, certainly more readily available. Throughout the 1960s, two men, Edward Donnelly and James McGinnon, were the editors and printers of two magazines called Exit and Way Out. Each edition featured about 300 ads, each offering various kinds of sexual experimentation, each private ad featuring a minimum of 24 words, which cost one pound to place, and everyone from the straight to the gays to the transgender interested in everything from whipping to restraining to wife swapping dared to reach out to like-minded. Wait, so it's 300 ads. Are these placed by individuals or businesses that offer these services? I'm assuming they're businesses. I'd like... Your sex robot, please. I don't know. I'm also It assuming, sounds like personal. Oh, it also says it also says there's prostitution that was offered in these magazines too. Okay. But yeah, it sounds like just a big list of personal ads and there's probably like categories for stuff. Well, like, there was also personal ads. Can you let me fucking finish? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Because it, it talks about how there was also invitations for swinging mm-hmm. in these magazines too. 
Um, but if personal ads had become preserver of sexual risk takers, there was a newer, more high-tech way of meeting on the horizon. In 1959, two Stanford engineering students designed a class project called Operation Match. So this was like the early version of Match.com, which was IBM 7090 to match up a pool of 49 men and 49 women. After filling out a paper questionnaire, which they mailed to a group along with $3, the answers were punched into the computer before each individual received a printout of the match's names and phone numbers. By the autumn of 1965, six months after its launch, 90,000 Operation Match questionnaires had been completed. Oh my God. Making the founders $270,000 in profit or $1.8 billion in today's money. We supply everything but the spark, chimed in co-founder Jeffrey Tarr. So that was early Mash.com in the 60s. They're, they're also, I think it was either the 80s or the early 90s, there was video dating. Do you get into that at all? Um, if you let me get through the 70s and the 80s, maybe we'll freaking talk about it. I, are we actually going to talk about Can it? Can we talk about this later? Okay, I, but I, I think Scott, it's, every time I do a book report, you're like, let me just chime in and ruin the rest of the book. Oh, damn, I'm sorry, Naomi. Uh, no, it, it's interesting where even from the beginning of like trying to match people up, they were asking these questionnaires and then being like, these people have compatibility. That must mean that they're going to get along. And these questions were probably like, do you enjoy spending time with men? Do you enjoy spending time with women? <laughs> And this is supposed to be the height of, like, relationship research. It would be interesting having a study that interviewed people who got together in different ways, you know, whether from this study or from video dating or from online dating using algorithms and see if the efficacy of the relationship is in any way dictated. There was a lot of, um, moving into the 70s, there was a lot of gay discrimination. Oh, really, Naomi? Yeah. So in the early 1970s, it was common for pubs to reject gay couples for holding hands and for gay men and women to be assaulted on the street. Police officers in plain clothes were often used for entrapment. Wow, same as today. And um, pubs were um, used to be a deliberate lure and able to arrest them if they were approached by anyone looking for sex. In response, a tiny coalition determined protesters established the Gay Liberation Front to challenge such practices. In 1972, a summer protest in London Tide Park involved a teen, Peter Tatchell, who had been known as the UK's first gay pride march. So that was the first pride march. Woohoo! In the United Kingdom. In the UK, yeah. But if 1970s couples could make it past the dating stage, they needed, um, they still needed a hand in which to get down to it in the bed. Wow, that was really weird wording. There was a sex manual that was published in 1972 called The Joy of Sex, written by Dr. Alex Comfort, a medical doctor which had been educated at Cambridge University. The manual had been groundbreaking, but it was also very frank in its tone and used graphic illustrations because it covered such taboo subjects as swinging, bondage, and group sex, as well as including such outlandish um, suggestions for original sex, sexy times, including sex on a moving motorbike and sex on horseback. Um, something that was a no-no, several things were a no-no during this time. Wife swapping became like huge, like I just mentioned, but people actually went to jail for pawning off their wives. So a, someone could get arrested if they were, if people suspected they were like trying to wife swap. Um, specifically in swinging situations and couple vacations were morally unacceptable to the church. So if you went on a vacation with your significant other that you were married to, it was seen as like too sexy and you weren't allowed to do it. Yeah. And 
that that's interesting because our grandparents yeah. on our mother's side went yeah. on a number of around the world vacations. Yeah. No, but I think, well, I don't know if they did them alone or if they did them. Like, I mean, that might've been a little bit later and might've been in the eighties, but still, but still, yeah. 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 Hmm. So there was a rise in VD in the seventies. And also in 1978, the women's liberation movement conference um, was, it had its first meeting and Erica Jong released her groundbreaking book, Fear of Flying, the tale of doctor's wife who embarked on the right to a passage of infidelity and sexual self-discovery. De- selling three million copies in the first year, it introduced the concept of uh, the zipless fuck, casual sex on the woman's term, to a generation of women who now had the contraception with which to armor themselves. In the U.S., the Height Report surveyed the sex lives of American women, concluded that orgasm was strong and easy for women if they only received stimulation in the correct way. So that was a huge groundbreaking book. And men were like, uh, I'm going to continue doing what I've always done. Yeah, zipless fuck. What does that mean? I don't know. I, I was like assuming that it was like you just unzip your pants, then you like stick it in. But I'm 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 just it's just rubbing things against each other. I literally don't know. You can't ask me like I could read you the quote. again. This is why I, I have to add it. additional context. Naomi. <laughs> so the 80s. As many of you may know, there is a rat. There was a huge rise in AIDS and there was a large stigmatization between gay let's just say homosexuals and um, heterosexuals during this time period. And people that were seen as gay were um, seen as half humans because they could potentially hold AIDS. And there was a lot of people dying because of AIDS. I mean, it was partially stigma, but there was also, I think, a big cultural idea that, oh, you got what you deserve. You've defied God's laws. And so this is your punishment. And the federal government refused to act for many, many years, I think, due to the fact there were such conservative ideas, the highest level of government under, say, the Reagan administration. There was a large number of women who worked during this time period as well as being married. So there was a rise in work life and marriage life, um, as well as um, there was a survey that was done in the Daily Mail in 1984 um, in the women's portion of the Daily Mail magazine. Um, about relationships accounting for 6,000 single women, allegedly the largest study of its kind. The survey proved that women were finding their feet as never before in relationships and beginning to articulate what they really wanted, even if they were not yet always securing it for themselves. The results included the stats that 9 out of 10 women would like more cuddling and kissing before sex, that 1 in 10 had enjoyed sex with another woman, and the majority of women thought it was acceptable for both boys and girls to start having sex around the same age. You said 1 out of 10? 1 out of one in 10 had enjoyed sex with another woman. Interesting, because yeah. that implies there's more than 1 out of 10 who did not enjoy having sex with a woman but still did it. Well, I'm assuming when they say had enjoyed, yeah, it means yeah. like they have had sex. Sure. Yeah. Um, stilly, surprisingly large three of out of five of under 19 year olds believed a couple should be in love or have plans to marry before they have sex. 85% would have never been married. Still, uh, would never been married, still wanted to walk up the aisle. And 46% said both partners felt equally responsible for contraceptive with around the same proportion saying that they felt women were more responsible. So um, during this time, obviously, contraceptive was even more available than ever. And um, people were using the pill in order to ensure that they were not carrying children. 
Matchmaking also became extremely large during this time. So like the matchmaking agencies were really, really big. And um, the last stat I want to leave you with about the 80s is a sex stat. By the end of the decade, uh, some 62.5% of women surveyed by the NATSAL, the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, thought one night stands wrong. Oral sex increased as a result of the anxiety over risk of infection through penetration, and yet nearly a quarter of men and women were not using contraceptive at first intercourse compared with nearly 40% back in the 1950s. Despite the advances made by the pill, the condom was now become the first choice of contraceptive. And into the 90s. Now, I kind of want to quickly go through the 90s because that was obviously more recent than the 1700s and a lot of people know, but I'm going to bring up some interesting facts that I found that um, I think would be good to bring up on the podcast. So Princess Diana was married to Prince Charles during the 90s and their marriage was a huge deal, like very big wedding. It was on TV, very, very big. So that brought in the large culture of having big marriages, like having big weddings. So you have the big dress, you have the big cake, you have the royal looking wedding. And that shot up the wedding industry in a way that it had never been seen before. That, that's funny because it's like you see this royal family which has access to untold fortunes yes. surrounded by like the most powerful institutions in the world create this opulent display of like wealth and joining with another person. And you're like, this is achievable for my life. Yes. It's yeah. It's very interesting, but people are like, Oh, it's a huge opulent wedding and they're so in love and blah, blah, blah. And I want that for myself. So it was more about the fairy tale than it was about anything else. Yeah, I wonder if it's, I want to be perceived as as beautiful and desirable as Princess Diana, or I want to be perceived as economically, economically successful and like financially independent as yeah. like someone who can afford one of these weddings or some combination of the two. Yeah, because I, I think, I don't know if you agree with me on this, I don't really I have don't a desire understand. for a giant wedding in a church. With, no, I agree with you. I don't you. plan I don't to spend, you know, $100,000, $120,000 on an elaborate wedding. Yeah. Uh, if I have that much money to spend on something, I'd much prefer getting married in a small ceremony and then going on an opulent around-the-world vacation or something. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems kind of silly to quote-unquote start a new life with someone and throw away all that money on a single day. I do agree that that's a stupid way to spend your money. And that's just me. But it could just be that we are millennial and Gen Zers. We should we do an episode different. on like wedding attitudes. We should. I think that'd be a really great experience. Yeah. So moving back into the 90s, women over 60 started reclaiming sex in their sex lives. Um, there was a rise in mail order brides because the access to the internet dieting is really big because of dating culture so dieting and dating culture sort of interlock and the venn diagram becomes more like a circle sex in the city was published and it's put it on tv and people are like what the hell is this um but it starts to kind of change the culture of sex in a way that people are more open to talking about it and women are like oh my god if these women can do it i'm such a samantha so i'm going to also i don't know who samantha is i'm gonna be honest i think i watched like half a movie on sex i I think sex in the city was successful because it's for again quote unquote independent single women yes. who have the ability to like use their success and their money to choose who they want to date 
and there weren't really any depictions of women who had that independence on TV beforehand. I mean, you can cite a couple of films about like individual women pursuing their passions and before then, but yeah, having this, this thing that was accessible to everyone that everybody could view uh, that had multiple seasons is, is kind of a, 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 a change in culture that hadn't been seen before. Yeah, I would agree with that. So speed dating got really big during this time. In 1998, an LA-based rabbi called Yaakov Deo, I really just butchered his name. I'm so sorry, sir. Yaakov Shmirnov. <laughs> hosted a group of friends at his house in California, asking them for ideas on how they could best serve the dating needs of the local Jewish community. They came up with the idea of a 10-minute table-hopping escapade that, could, that would give partic- participants a quick and efficient way to assess their temporary date as a potential spouse. America, what a country. Using an Excel spreadsheet to keep track of the participants, along with feedback cards that recorded their impressions, they launched their experiment into Pete's Coffee House in Beverly Hills and began the process of patenting the notion of speed dating. Within a year, the experiment had exploding and exploded, and Dale gave up on the idea of trying to trademark it. In Judaism, there's a concept called zikas, the merit that is created by a good action. He told the New York Times magazine in 2013, if the action was leading to more marriages and babies across the world, that was good enough for Deo. Speed dating firmly attracted the young demographic for whom the dating game was very much still that, but there was a new character to be catered for, the divorcee. So divorcees got very into speed dating. You know, Pete's could have been just as successful as Starbucks if they had successfully branded themselves as, as an the event space yeah. or for like speed dating. Yeah. Yeah, just hosting like stuff in a Pete's coffee and getting people jacked up on caffeine beforehand. Yeah. So we're moving into the 2000s to now. And this is ending off the book. This is the last chapter. It talks a lot about the purity movement, which if you need a good book to read, um, I think it's called The Purity Myth but I'm, I'm spacing the author. Um, if you need to read a book about the purity movement, read the purity myth by, um, Jessica Valenti. She also had a documentary made about it, but, um, really good book talks a lot about the purity movement. If you're interested in that, look at that book. There's a lot of online weirdness and a lot of online, um, creepy situations that people get involved with because people are like, oh, I'm going to meet people online. It's obviously going to be safe if I meet them online and then meet them in person. You're wrong. Don't do that. Um, And that started because of the uprise of everyone having access to the internet and dial-up or now being Wi-Fi. I I, I think there's been kind of a desensitization to sexual content because you're just exposed so much to it online. And this was an experience I had, but I think a lot of people have had experiences where they spent a lot of time in like forums and chat rooms when they were younger yeah. on Omegle or something where they're, you know, a, a fresh faced 10 to 14 year old interacting with people who are probably creepy adults and like yeah. role playing and having adult conversations and being able to both explore their sexuality. But th- there's also that like, exploitation element of it that's like embedded in these weird power dynamics that anonymous accounts uh can have and so yeah i I think a lot of sexual mores and taboos were broken down over you know the early 2000s just because everybody was having these experiences and these interactions and this stuff no longer seemed as crazy when 
you yourself had experienced it, if that makes sense. I met someone in college who was a couple years older than me my freshman year, and she explained to me that she um, was dating an older guy. And the more I got to know her, the weirder it got. She had told me that she was um, pretty active in, like, online chat forums Mm -hmm. when um, she was younger. And this was, like, early, early 2000s. Um, she talked about the fact that when she was like 13, she met someone online who she thought was her age and he ended up showing up to her house, found her IP address and kidnapped her and took her across state lines. I don't know how accurate this is, but she said the FBI had to get involved and blah, blah, blah. Well, now she's dating a 50 something year old and she's in her twenties. So I, I met a guy in college. I was working on a group project and one person came up to us as we were sitting in the engineering space at ASU and introduced himself. He was a friend of someone in the project group. And before he even said his name, he looked at me point blank and said, you know, I was in a porno once. And this guy was like 18, 19. I was like, uh, what? When were you in a porno? And he was like, well, I was in Los Angeles and I needed some extra cash. And I don't remember. I was like at a shopping center or something. And they're like, hey, man, you want to be in a porn film? And I'm like, sure. And it was just like a glory hole thing where like my dick was on camera, but I wasn't on camera. But, you know, if you want to see it. And then he like told me at access it. I'm like, this is very intimate. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think, again, the kind of a desensitization among a lot of people towards it. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm not trying to put a moral judgment on it. It's fascinating how people are much more open and accepting of discussing sexual experiences and all that. Uh, but I, I, I do think it's certainly something to explore about whether or not that changes your perceptions on relationships and dating as a result. I feel like that conversation is just a way that the guy comes up to people and is like, hey, do you want to see my dick without me sending you a dick picture? He was very proud of it. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So during this time, obviously, we know that porn use is up because of the access to the Internet. But anxiety in bed is also up because a lot of men and women are... Um, Comparing themselves to the videos that they see online. I don't have a 14-inch hog. It does keep me up at night. Um, I'm, talking, about, I'm, talking, I'm talking about a pet a pig. You don't have a third leg. God, we are just jumping to conclusions. Long-distance relationships become easier because of the access to the internet. and Obviously, you can talk to them a lot more often. Um, and Tinder was started at a college. And actually, this is funny. I learned this recently that Bumble was actually started as a spinoff of Tinder because... Um, the creator of Tinder wanted his girlfriend to be on the board of Tinder and then broke up with her. And then she was like, fuck this. I'm going to go start Bumble. And then it became like twice as uh, like accessible and like more used than Tinder. So like go Bumble's off, twice as used as Tinder? Yeah. It's like a lot wow. more like, and well, I don't know if that's actually a statistic, but it's like more widely used like across the world. Interesting. But also a lot of people are falling off the Tinder bandwagon because like we mentioned in earlier episodes on our podcast, a lot of people are moving away from hookup culture and moving mm-hmm. towards dating culture. So um, last note I want to leave you on is STI rates in particular diagnosis of HPV and gonorrhea may be up, but there was partly attributable to a greater attendance of sexual health clinics. Instead, younger people get are increasingly responsible. They don't drink, take drugs or get pregnant at the same rate as their parents and grandparents. LOL. While the cost of weddings has increased, the recession has forced many couples into premature cohabitation and back to their parents' homes. Rent increases have forced the closure of underground gay clubs, while fast food restaurants Nando's has become the UK's most popular venue for a date. A lack of not only disposable income, but permanent jobs offering progression and stabilizing benefits have had a bad effect. I'm not even going to try to say that word on millennial short-term habits and long-term expectations. 
gives a whole new meaning to the phrase Cheeky Nando's. Cheeky Nando's. You know what Cheeky Nando's is? No, but I've uh, Cheeky before. Nando's is British slang, which means going to the local chicken restaurant Nando's to eat some chicken. But if it's talking about dating culture, I like it. Yeah. I like it much more. Yeah. Getting some cheeks at Nando's. Getting some chicken at Nando's. So, Naomi, I think this was a fascinating exploration of dating culture throughout the years. I mean, I think it might be inaccurate to say that dating culture existed at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, the first couple of years. I would not say that. But, yeah, obviously there's a lot of global, historical, sociological, and economic trends interwoven with this that probably, you know, caused this stuff to happen. I don't think it was people waking up one day and being like, Oh, I want respect. It was, oh, fabric is in short supply, so short skirts are suddenly okay, which well, that blows my mind. Because uh, the way I've always heard it phrased is like, oh, it was a period of women's independence. Well, it was a period of women's independence, but it wasn't entirely them wanting to like flout societal conventions. It was, there's just not enough fabric to yeah. go around. Yeah. And so I, I think we, we disregard how much relationships and dating have been influenced by these broader historical trends. Exactly. And without understanding those, you can't really make accurate predictions about what's yet to come. Well, I would like to say that I really enjoyed reading this book. And if you want um, more information, we will have all the details in our description of this episode. So go check it out. Would you recommend people read it even if they've listened to this episode? I would recommend it. Yeah, it gives a lot of... I, I didn't mention everything in the book. I didn't like do a full summary. I just took out the quotes that I thought would directly relate to this um, episode. So um, I would like to say, have a great week. Joel, is there anything you want to end on? Um, good book report, Naomi. Thank you. My voice hurts. Yes, you seem desperate for a gulp of water near the end there. Yes. Well, but you have fruit punch now, so console yourself with that. Thanks for listening, all. You enjoy your week. Keep on dating. Thanks for the use of our theme music, which is the song Drop by Ketza. You can find more of their music online at ketza.uk. You can also find Date These Guys online on Twitter and Instagram at Date These Guys, or visit our website at datetheseguys.org. If you have questions you'd like us to discuss in the podcast or marriage proposals for either of us, shoot us an email at datetheseguys at gmail.com.